Howdy, and welcome to the very first episode of A Pensacola Perspective. I'm Tyler L. Davis, your guide on this journey through the heart of Escambia County and its vibrant surrounding areas, including our largest city, Pensacola. There's a special kind of magic that envelops our corner of the world, the sunsets that paint the skies in hues of orange and purple, the gentle lull of the gulf waves, and the rich tapestry of history that weaves through the streets of Pensacola. It's a place that captures hearts and leaves an indelible mark on everyone who calls it home or has had the opportunity to visit. As I've watched the area change over the years, I do have an overwhelming sense of passion for Escambia, its people, its stories, and its potential. And that passion is what drives this series. I believe that every community, no matter how perfect or how imperfect, can always strive for improvement. That improvement doesn't just come from local leaders or policymakers, it comes from each of us every resident, every business owner, and even those who visit our beautiful shores. Whether you've been a part of this community for generations or you're a newcomer just discovering the charms of the area, I invite you to join me in a collective journey toward making this place even more extraordinary. This series isn't just a platform for information. It's a call to action, a celebration of what makes our community unique, and a commitment to see it thrive. Together, let's explore the stories that shape us, address the challenges we face, and highlight the incredible efforts that contribute to the betterment of the panhandle. I firmly believe that by fostering a sense of community, encouraging open dialogue, and working hand-in-hand, we can create positive change that resonates for generations to come without creating changes that make Pensacola feel overly different. So whether you're listening as a resident eager to see your community flourish, or a visitor curious about the heart and soul of Escambia, welcome. Welcome to a space where passion meets purpose, and where each episode is an opportunity to fuel the collective spirit that makes Escambia County not just a place on the map, but a home we all cherish. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's dive in, explore, and make a difference together. This is a Pensacola Perspective. Since this is the first episode, I'll go over some basics of what to expect from this series, and I'll try to keep it brief, although most of the time that isn't my strong suit. In today's episode, like in most episodes, we've got a mix of current events, including things like entertainment, local food spots to check out, drinks, etc., historical insights, and a focus on things that relate to Pensacola and the surrounding areas. I may chat about politics from time to time, but it'll mostly be in relation to things like the economy, the rise in homelessness in our area, and the housing market. With that being said, this series will do the following offer links and resources to all news mentioned in the series. Try to remain politically unbiased. I have no problem chatting about it either way. I know this can be a heated subject for a lot of people, especially in Florida nowadays. I'm currently registered as MPA, just like roughly a third of other residents throughout Florida. If I do offer perspective about a political figure or issue, I'll try to relate it to our area, maybe the state level and the national level as applicable. If there are guests, they may have differing opinions than my own, which I welcome. If the topic of combo solely revolves around politics, I'll disclaim as such initially in case that's an episode you'd like to skip or a section you'd like to pass over. I won't tolerate disrespect of anyone or anything. Differences of opinions will always happen and should because that's how growth happens. So I'd ask that we all remain cognizant of the respect that we're giving and getting. 
Finally, I'll try to offer some local news and information about things that are going on. This will include the tri-county areas of Escambia, Santa Rosa, and Okaloosa counties, but it may also spill over into other areas of the Panhandle as well. The format will typically be as follows. I'll cover current local events and news, the ins and outs segment, which will feature a historical place or topic in the area and some of the local gossip, accounts, and information about it. Maybe some local politician spotlights here and there, a simple housing market overview, the rise to homelessness, some community spotlights and events, and my conclusions. And if by this time you're wondering who the heck I am, well, I'm bad about introductions typically, but here's what I got. I'm a Pensacola native, born and mostly raised here my whole life. My family did spend one year in Ohio when one of my younger uncles was sick with HIV AIDS in the 90s. Otherwise, the majority of my 34 years have been in Pensacola and the surrounding areas. I was raised in a community of individuals who cared greatly about not only our family, but about people around them, no matter what they looked like. If we're down to brass tacks, my mom was a single black parent raising a rather white looking baby in the South in the late 80s, early 90s. She did have the help of my grandmother and my godmother to absolutely no end. I am the oldest of my mother's children, the second youngest of my father's children, half black, half white, and 100% Pensacola. My mother's family, who I was solely around, moved to Pensacola in roughly 1890, leaving Alabama to start anew in Florida. In 1898, they bought their first piece of land in Cantonment, part of which was sold to what is now the paper mill or international paper, IP. For school, I did attend Tate High School, where I also marched in band. I was specifically in drumline, even more specifically in the front ensemble or pit. Uh, So not as much marching, but there was still a little here and there for parades. If you're familiar with the area or with the band, Tate is known as the show band of the South. And I also went to our local colleges, which are PJC slash PSC, which used to be Pensacola Junior College and it's now Pensacola State College and UWF, which is the University of West Florida, respectively. I went to both of those for my degrees, one of which was in art and the other was behavior and business. I've been working professionally since I was 18 years old. I have almost 10 years experience in finance and I'm an avid listener. I also love to travel, but I am a mom of three with elderly parents on both my side and my husband's side, so we don't get to travel as much or as far as I used to, but that'll change once the kids are older. With that intro, and I am feeling a little under the weather, so this is not my normal speaking voice, but I hope that you do feel like you know me a little bit better, and I look forward to getting to know and listen to anyone who would like to chat or has a passion for our area that they don't know how to express. Hit me up. Always need to see. So without further ado, let's get into it. Next up for entertainment under food and drinks, I'm just going to highlight a couple of local restaurants that have opened recently within the past few months in our area. Two of the ones that I have to call out today are Don Cha Peruvian Food and Jet's Pizza. Don Cha Peruvian Food is located at 3103 East Strong Street in downtown Pensacola, Opening its Pensacola location in November of 2023, Don Cha Peruvian Food is a second location of its kind in the Panhandle, the first being the Don Cha Peruvian Food location that was established in Fort Walton Beach in 2017. 
With largely popular reviews at its inaugural location, owner Pedro Jose Ramirez Flores opened another location here in the heart of downtown Pensacola. It's located in the former Los Cebollines Mexican restaurant location, which opened in 2019 and closed not long after. Prior to Los Cebollines, the building was occupied by Horizon Sushi for about 20 years before its closing in 2018. The restaurant has dishes from the owner's home country of Peru and features a variety of soups, sandwiches, salads, and specials ranging between under $10 to about $30 per dish. I personally only just discovered the restaurant last week, so I'm really excited to try the Lomo Sotado, a dish that's made with pieces of steak, sautéed onions, and tomatoes, served with french fries and white rice. It has a menu price of $15.50, so that's a really good starting price for a dish in our area. I'll drop the link to their info and hope that y'all check them out. Looks like they offer specials every Friday, and they do serve some alcohol. Looking at you, purple corn drink. If you try them out in Fort Walton Beach or in Pensacola, let me know what you think and what you'd recommend. Next is Jet's Pizza, a Detroit-style pizza place. They're located at 2620 Creighton Road, Suite 301 in Pensacola. A new chain franchise-style pizza place by the name of Jet's Pizza has opened its doors in its first location in Pensacola. They currently also have a location in Destin. Jet's Pizza is apparently renowned for its delicious square-shaped pizzas characterized by an uber-cheesy topping, fresh veggies, and quality ingredients, particularly its signature Detroit-style buttery crust square pizza situation. It's supposed to be crunchy and has a flavorized crust. The menu at Jet's offers a variety of pizza styles, including deep dish, hand-tossed, NY-style, and thin crust. The eight-corner pizza may be considered a highlight of their menu because, as its name suggests, it's a square-shaped pie. Those are always a good time. Jet's offers unique flavor crust options, allowing customers to customize their crust with free choices like turbo crust, butter, romano, poppy seed, sesame seed, garlic, and cajun. Beyond Pizza, Jets offers a diverse menu featuring calzone-style deli boats, turbo sticks, salads, wings, and boneless chicken, all of which are available for delivery and takeout. That concludes the restaurant, food, and drink portion of this segment. If there are any new or local upcoming restaurants that you would like to make me aware of, please hit me up. I'll gladly support them and try out any local businesses as long as my tongue can allow it. And if I can't handle it, my husband is kind of like a garbage disposal, and he'll try eating most anything at least once, so I'll live vicariously through him. Next, I'll go over some restaurant inspections for the Tri-County area. Again, this includes Escambia, Santa Rosa, and Okaloosa counties. I'm looking at this information on the PNJ website, the Pensacola News Journal, which is one of our local publications, and it's a really nifty service because they offer it for the entire state of Florida. So even if you don't live in Florida or you're visiting or, you know, you don't live in the Panhandle or even just the Tri-County area, you can just go on here, select your county. You can even enter the restaurant name, address, city, any of that information and search, and you'll be able to look at any violations, um, or anything that happened on the inspections at a glance. So first up for Escambia County, in the last 30 days, 99 restaurants passed their first inspection, 19 did not pass their first inspection, and there were 53 restaurants that passed their first inspection without any violations. One of the biggest things that I'm going to call out will also be the restaurants with the most violations in the last 30 days. That's not to say that you know, they're not going to get their things together. These are just a call out at this time because it seems like maybe these 
these areas are having some difficulties. And I know if you're like me with a sensitive stomach, I just, I can't handle, <laughs> I can't handle that depending on what it is. Additionally, if you click on each one of the violations and even each on each one of the, the things individually, it'll tell you, you know, what restaurants didn't pass and what they didn't pass, the warnings that were issued, um, emergency orders, administrative complaint recommended, stuff like that. So for the first one, restaurants with the most violations in the last 30 days in Escambia County, Rigo's Tacos 2, Siam Thai Restaurant, Taste of India, Six Kids Store Super Deli, La Cabana Mascarilla, and Gutney Barbecue. Rigo's Tacos 2 has nine violations, Siam Thai Restaurant 8, Taste of India 8, Six Kids 8, La Cabana 7, and Gutney Barbecue 7 as well. For Santa Rosa County, in the last 30 days, 17 restaurants passed their first inspection, three restaurants did not pass their first inspection, and seven restaurants passed their first inspection without any violations. Restaurants with the most violations in the last 30 days for Santa Rosa include Cisco's with eight violations, TC's Front Porch with four violations, Mugshot's Grill and Bar with three violations, Main Moon Chinese Restaurant and Oshi Restaurant of Navarre, Inc., both with three violations. Finally, for Okaloosa, in the past 30 days, 57 restaurants passed their first visit inspection, 13 restaurants did not pass their first inspection, while 25 of them did pass without any violations. The restaurants with the most violations in the past 30 days for Okaloosa are Party Fowl, oh goodness, how ironic, with 11 violations, uh, the Olive Garden uh, with 9 violations, Juicy Crab House, Yuga Sushi and Sake House, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, all of which have 7 violations. That concludes the entertainment segment. The next segment we'll focus on will be history. In this section, I'll typically talk about some local highlights and historical developments in the area. Today, however, I'll be focusing on a segment that I've dubbed Ins and Outs. Each week, this segment may have the same or a different home depending on the given subject. This week, it's located in the history segment. So without further ado, this segment is called Ins and Outs, where I explore some of the local legends, look into some minor intrigue, and chat about potentially tall tales of Florida's Gulf Coast. In 2005, an Oceanside property along Scenic Highway was purchased in the amount of $450,000. Over the years, this property grew to a massive worth of, at its peak, more than $1.9 million. Gold plating, golden cars, and gilded trusses all welcome you down a winding, glittering path to take us to the notorious Scenic Highway Taj Mahal. If you've ever seen it, you know exactly why it was given the name. If not, I'll try to paint a picture as best and as briefly as I can. Picture it, India, 1632. The Taj Mahal is beginning construction. In the presence of the Taj Mahal, there's a profound sense of reverence and wonder. It's not merely a structure, it's a testament to the power and love and the ability of human hands to create something truly extraordinary. The Taj Mahal's beauty is timeless, and its impact resonates deeply, making it an unparalleled marvel that lingers in the hearts and minds of those fortunate enough to witness its splendor. The scenic highway Taj Mahal is kind of like the recorder version of that. With that, let's dive beyond the golden facade into a realm of local legends surrounding the mysterious owner, 
whom we'll discreetly identify as MM. While I do know the owner's name, potentially, I'll opt to use the initials MM since this information is easily found online, just as I've found it. When I was growing up in Pensacola, one of the fastest growing rumors that I can recall was about the scenic highway Taj Mahal, more namely the owner. This was supposed to be a suspicious figure, though maybe not for the reason you'd think. This person had moved to the peaceful bayside bordering the Escambia and Santa Rosa counties and was supposedly an Iranian national or a Middle Eastern prime minister who had fled his country after embezzling money from his country's government in some way. Because of this and our relationship with the Middle East countries, MM didn't fear extradition and began to build up the property around him to his liking. One of the most sensible and seemingly out-of-place additions came early on. A two-story home was built snugly against the cliff sitting just next to the highway. It wasn't a very remarkable building on the outside, and in fact, it was rather plain next to his own home, but it was built for his mother-in-law and showed at least that there was a sweet side of MM because he cared for his family, which all of us can mostly relate to. I never heard much about his mother-in-law, but when she did pass away, the house was demolished after a year, as I believe it was a part of the custom to honor the recently departed. But then after that time, the gaudy gold house alongside the continued additions to the property only continued to add to the mystery of the goings-on in the area. And this continued for some time, many of us wondering if he would ever leave, if those from his country would ever try to come and get their money back, or if he would, you know, make an addition to the home that made sense and didn't leave you scratching your head. Everything was fine year over year for almost a decade, and then we even began seeing new additions to the gold house again, this time in the form of fences and odd little treehouse looking structures that started popping up further away from the main house. It was looking like we were going to have yet another year of yet another addition to the never-ending and ever-perplexing exterior design choices of this potentially seedy multimillionaire. But then it happened. In the mid-2010s, there was supposedly a break-in that took place at the property. MM was beaten black and blue, and the motivation behind which was stated as purely theft. But a lot of us were thinking, well, what's the real story here? Here's this man who supposedly stole lots of money from lots of people, and then he ran away. On top of that, this guy was the apparent owner of West Point, a seemingly poorly run and definitely poorly reviewed retirement community located in the North Point area of Pensacola that's still there today. Searching through the articles in the area at the time yields no real information about the attempted robbery that would have taken place sometime in 2016 or 2017. An article was published in 2019 about a home invasion and a robbery stating that three individuals were sentenced in connection with a home invasion that took place in 2017, but no other details about the location of the home invasion were provided. The article even skips on identifying the victim, which is definitely a reasonable thing to protect their identity, so no shades being thrown over that. However, without even a street name or a part of town being connected to this article, it leaves speculation around these individuals and the scenic highway Taj Mahal break-in. After all, this article states that the person who was in the home identified one of the individuals from the lineup because they held him at gunpoint for the combination to his safe. 
According to the rumors at the time, that's what happened to M.M. And then also he was badly beaten and most people weren't sure if he survived. They weren't sure if he was left for dead and then hastily fled the area once he was a little bit better or if he just sold the property and chose to live elsewhere. A final piece of the puzzle to make me scratch my head is the final selling price of the home in 2017. At that time, the home was worth around $1.45 million. So why was it being sold for a scant $100,000, especially bearing in mind that the original price paid was $450,000? Some people speculate that M.M. knew he wouldn't be able to sell his vast estate. After all, there was this mystery and intrigue surrounding it and him. That withstanding, again, this property was genuinely kind of hideous. <laughs> Is it the worst thing ever? Not really, but whether you've come to love it or not, it's a part of Pensacola and it has a lasting history here, no matter what becomes of that property. Other ideas are that he never truly sold the property and it still remains connected to him in some way. After all, we did get a very blue Christmas out of the scenic highway Taj Mahal this year as it was lit up in all blue. Some other stories that I've heard about M.M. include that he's actually an older Indian man and that his wife was an ex-Bollywood actress. As for his wife, I've never heard a lot about her, but some stories say that she lives elsewhere. Really and truly just that. I've never heard anything nefarious about his wife or that relationship, so I can't really speak to that. I say this not to add anything, but just info that I've heard that I'm passing along. Of course, most of this is hearsay, local legends, and tall tales passed along by kids and adults who have lived in this area and didn't expect someone, and certainly not something, of that magnitude to gravitate toward Pensacola. Some items may have some truth to them, like the ownership of the West Point Retirement Community or the mother-in-law's home that was built, but others are still hard to track down for certain. Whatever the case, we hope that this local story has piqued your interest. If you have any additional information about the scenic highway Taj Mahal, please let me know and I'd be more than happy to review it and discuss it. This has been Ins and Outs, Pensacola Edition. economy. In this next segment, I'll go over some things about the economy, specifically as they relate to our area in Pensacola and our surrounding areas. One of the trends that one of my friends had brought up whenever I was asking about information, what other things they'd like to see in this series was the Kevin Allister experiment. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's the experiment where you go back to a certain date and time and you look up how much food costs and then you look at what foods cost today, uh, like the same items in the same area and you do kind of like a cost comparative analysis to look at how much goods and services have increased in relation to uh, maybe the income in your area, like the median income on the west side of Pensacola, which is technically Warrington in those areas, um, is like 25000 annually, something like that. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have homes that are trying, people are trying to sell for over $350,000. Doesn't make sense. The math does not math, unfortunately. Like many other families and people in our area, I shop at Walmart. 
have a Walmart Plus account because it benefits me. It also benefits both my mom and my brother who are disabled and pretty much just bound to the house right now. So, you know, they can get things delivered and that's totally awesome. They don't have to leave the house most of the time, which isn't really awesome, but at least they can still get things that they need. So I went back into uh, January of 2020, which was the oldest the oldest information and orders, oldest orders that I have available on my Walmart Plus account. I tried to keep everything pretty much one-to-one -one, and I'll try to share some of the screenshots and everything that I took, but essentially what I found was, yes, just as we've all known and just as I knew at the time because I buy groceries literally all the time, we have too many people to not buy groceries uh, more than once a week sometimes. So one of the first purchases that I wanted to review and try to do a comparative cost review on was just for some orders that I placed in January and then these things might have just food or my first order has food and also other items like a lamp and maybe a nightlight and stuff like that. So I tried to find items that were comparable in most points. Some items I actually found were a little bit cheaper and if I were buying those things now, I would go for the cheaper option or an option that was as close as possible. But without further ado, I'll dive into it. So for my first purchase, uh, the total was $105.85. Fast forward to buying the same items as of today, still 27 items, the total came to $137.87 and none of that includes additional costs for delivery or pickup because delivery and pickup is free for Walmart Plus users. And then I also did not do like a rush delivery order, which can cost more money. Um, so like I said, that one had both food and non-food items. And my next one, I had solely food items. And I will say that the difference does really start to come into play whenever you look at it from a food only perspective. So this, this order I placed on January 16th, 2020, it had 53 items on it and they were all food items or drink items. The initial total was $183.51. And then comparing that to January of 2024, four years later, the total is $235.74. Still for 53 items, and this is only at Walmart. This does not include Publix or Aldi, which <laughs> that's one of those things we'll have to see because we do have Aldis that have come to our area. There's one I think that's even opening up in Destin or Fort Walden Beach, something like that. And um, I, they did have Aldi's whenever I lived in upstate Ohio. And again, my family lived in upstate Ohio, so we visited regularly. We only just lived there, actually lived there for about a year. But um, they're supposed to have lower prices. I've actually even seen on our Florida, on the Reddit for that, that people are... <laughs> People are just so frustrated with Publix because it's one of the things that we have, uh, you know, in the South. It replaced, um, uh, was it Anderson's? God, I can't even remember the name of the store now. But it replaced another another store down here that was a chain. I think it was Anderson. This is a side note after the fact. The name of the chain was actually Albertson's. So close and yet so far. I don't, I don't know. Um, so they replaced that chain a while ago and... It's just too expensive. <laughs> Quite frankly, people are literally at the point where they're trying to boycott Publix because the food is too expensive. So I get that because even in that difference, it was a $55 difference. So $55 
a $55 difference for food might not seem like a lot, but if you're buying food two times a week or if you're buying food for lots of people, it starts to add up. And what I really start to take note of is the items that you're buying. Some items just have a ridiculous amount of increase or inflation over the years, one of which was plasticware. <laughs> I looked at a set of 100 forks, uh, like clear forks, and back in... Back in 2020, the forks were, <laughs> it's just, it's such an odd thing. So back in 2020, um, you could get a set of great value everyday disposable plastic forks, clear 100 count for $4. At present, those same things cost over $7. Also, um, olive oil. Olive oil has had a significant price jump. Uh, I bought a 51 ounce bottle of great value brand extra virgin olive oil at that time four years ago around that time four years ago and um i'll just say that there was like a six or seven different six or seven dollar difference in the price increase over just that time some of these items i did notice like the clementines are actually starting to come down so um you know years ago the clementines were like five something dollars let's see a five pound bag of clementines was six dollars and 64 cents currently walmart is offering it for six dollars and 98 cents but this is actually a rollback or one of their price decreases because if you look at it it says it's now 6.98 whereas it was 7.98 um, i'm not sure how how recently that change has been but it's probably come within the past month or so because i've been out here buying these clementines and oranges y'all and it's expensive <laughs> Another item that um, seemed to have a significant increase were things like uh, ground meat, specifically ground turkey. I noticed that the price of ground turkey did go up significantly. I'm talking a three pound roll of ground turkey <clears throat> was something along the price range of six and a half dollars, and now it's closer to, to 10. So another thing I wanted to call out is that I did this between two different locations. The first order I did it at the Creighton location. The second order I did it at the Pensacola Boulevard Highway 29 location. In both situations, I just found that the biggest difficulty that we're having is certain items are experiencing hyperinflation. And I'm not sure if that's because of, you know, the the type of materials that are used to go into them. I personally thought we had a crap ton of plastic just lying around, so it's still baffling to me. You know, maybe it's a supply and demand thing because the holidays are still coming down, but that increase for that fork, for the forks, has me shook, y'all. <laughs> <clears throat> So let me know what you've seen for price increases in the area. I know the cost of living has risen exponentially. Um, things like our home values have risen exponentially, which I'll talk about a little bit more in the housing market overview. And um, and yet, you know, our income has increased a little bit, but uh, it's not it's not where it needs to be for all the other for all the other driving factors that have moved up way too much. And that one, as usual, is piddling behind. Next, as we delve into the economic landscape, we can't ignore the pressing issue of homelessness that has loomed over Pensacola, particularly exacerbated post-COVID in 2019. The challenge of homelessness isn't new to our city, but its persistence has grown more acute. Whether you're a longtime resident or a recent arrival, you've likely witnessed the struggles faced by citizens who can no longer afford their homes or even a place to stay. 
The difficulties manifested prominently under the overpass in downtown, an area that for a while became a makeshift city for those experiencing homelessness. The makeshift community was eventually dispersed after about a year or so, highlighting the complex and challenging nature of the issue. Unfortunately, it's a struggle we sometimes prefer to keep out of sight, tucked away beneath the bustling cityscape and sweeping it aside because of tourism. Venturing along the coastline, you might come across seemingly innocuous patches of bushes, yet upon closer inspection, these can sell makeshift homes, evidence of encampments housing those in need. The issue has grown exponentially over the years, with encampments stretching along the beachfront and piers, blending into the natural landscape. First, I noticed this at 19, a few scattered encampments that have now evolved into a concerning reality. There are now refugee families along Nine Mile, individuals crocheting socks along Pine Forest to make ends meet, and familiar faces seeking shelter in business parking lots throughout the day. It's an unsettling sight, a vivid testament to the struggles faced by our fellow residents, some of which seem wholly new to this area. In the face of these challenges, it's important to acknowledge local services like Loaves and Fishes, the Waterfront Mission, and others that offer overnight staying for a nominal fee, something along the lines of less than $5, I believe. However, they do operate with strict timelines, ushering guests out very early in the morning. For those facing this harsh reality, especially families with young children enduring chilling Northwest Florida nights, the downtown area may provide some solace. The hope is that services and support will continue to expand countywide to address growing homelessness crisis, but in the meantime, please go where you can to get the help that you need. Transitioning to the housing market overview, uh, these challenges intersect with the broader economic trends that we're seeing, creating a complex narrative that demands our attention and collective effort. One situation that comes to mind is a particular scenario unfolding at the end of my street, offering a stark and very real glimpse into the post-COVID Pensacola housing landscape. Back in 2020, Hurricane Sally struck, a slow-moving Category 2 storm that, despite its modest classification, unleashed havoc on our city. The memory of Hurricane Ivan, a Category 3 storm 16 years prior, loomed large with Sally's relentless downpour causing widespread flooding in unexpected areas. At the end of my street, that was one of those areas. A house that weathered the storm during Sally's relentless siege found itself in a precarious position. The floodwaters infiltrated the home, dousing its floors for days and leaving it uninhabitable. Over the next few years, the property changed hands, and in 2021, it was sold for a meager $35,000. Fast forward to 2023, a new owner emerged, investing in the dilapidated home and orchestrating a stunning transformation. The once moldy structure became a renovated southern farmhouse, meticulously furnished and adorned. A remarkable turnaround indeed, now listed at $250,000, marking a staggering profit of over $200,000. Yet, the captivating facade conceals a disconcerting reality. Lights were left on for extended periods of time, and a back door stood open for at least six weeks, a silent invitation to intruders. The home, exposed to the elements for months, became a canvas for illicit activities. Instances of theft, vandalism, and even evidence of unsavory activities happened within the property, and it became apparent. 
Despite this, within the first few weeks of listing, a contingent offer emerged, leaving me torn. How does one caution potential buyers without undermining legitimate profits? This is bad capitalism, undoubtedly, but what can one do when it's bad, but still legal? Not a lot, although the property's condition speaks volumes. The lights were left on, the doors were left open, there are holes in the walls, and there's neglected maintenance, and that all hints at rushed and low-cost renovations. The contingent offer fortunately dissipated, possibly due to the first-hand assessment of the property's surroundings. Uh, Once you went to the property, it was very, very noticeable that this was not a home that was worth $250,000. I reported the issues to the managing agency, but no response was received. The local police could only do so much to address the situation temporarily. What transpired is a cautionary tale, revealing that not all charming exteriors align with the substances within. For those considering a move to our area, a vigilant eye on property history, taxes, and resale prices is crucial. As we navigate the complex web of housing dynamics in Pensacola, please know that it's always a good thing to gain as much info as you can about an investment before making the investment, no matter the size. So when looking for homes in this area or in Florida overall, please, please do the heavy lifting before you find yourself in a situation that may be worse than the one that you're coming. This concludes the economy segment. I hope you found some information that was useful in this segment. And as always, if there's something that you would like to see differently in this segment or additional things that you would like to see, any trends, please let me know and I'll do my best to try to fill that space. This next segment is farm, home, and garden. I'll just explore some of the local things because we are heavily still a farm area in our Escambia County and some of the surrounding areas. And then also, these are just some activities that you can do with your kids or that you can even do yourself. No shade will be thrown over you making things that sound fun and crafty things because like, that's fine. You're an adult. You get to enjoy what you like. Don't ever let anybody tell you what you can and can't like just because of your age. As long as you're not doing anything that's, you know, hurting people. You're crocheting. You're playing Pokemon. You're going out and still playing Pokemon Go. Totally fine. Do what you love and do the things that make you happy. But it's getting to be that time of year again. Not as if it ever really stops in Florida, am I right? If you've been laying low during the summer season, fearing from cold snaps and oddly cold weather that we've had, fear not because it's January and we're officially in a very Florida winter. By that, I mean that the bees are already buzzing, um, some of which have still been buzzing from last year because they did not go into hibernation. And there's no time like the present to prep for spring. If you've been thinking about starting a garden in your yard, there's some things you should look into first. If you're within the city proper, there may be some rules that may apply to you that might not apply to some other areas in Pensacola. And that goes the same for bigger cities and areas like Destin. Because you are in a city area, there are different rules and regulations for your area. So please be sure to look at them before you start anything. If you're new to gardening and you're not sure where to begin, starting small with herbs may be a good way to test out your green thumb before diving in headfirst and buying something like an orange tree. Herbs such as rosemary, thyme, garlic, and even cat grass are all things with a relatively short grow time that 
and yield that makes you feel like you know what you're doing. Some starter plants that I'd recommend are peppers, lettuces, and again, herbs. These are typically not very temperamental plants and they have everyday uses so as not to promote food waste. If you do feel that you're getting toward the end of a plant's life, preserving is always a good idea. Whether pickling or making jams, bruisers help to save things that we can't use now for later. And it's a great tool that should still be utilized today. And outside of that, there are plenty of needy individuals around town. If you're feeling froggy in that capacity, I would just let people know what's in it, what you're giving them, and just caveat that, you know, it's on them whether or not they choose to eat it and consume it so that people won't get any ideas about trying to sue you. I know it sounds silly, but unfortunately it does happen. It has happened to corporations. It's happened to individuals. So just caveat with, you know, you're not doing a nice thing for nothing. You're doing a nice thing just so that people can have food and hopefully they'll be good with that. If you do have kids and you're wanting to get them involved, I would definitely recommend starting with herbs along a windowsill or even doing that bean sprout experiment that kids typically do in early K-5. It's a fun way to get kids interested in and invested in plants and life cycles. I'll drop some links below to some of the activities that you can try to do for your kids or for yourself. I would personally recommend starting with things like rosemary or uh, peppermint or spearmint. Uh, if you do, especially if you live in our area, things like mugwort, peppermints, or mints, period, citrusy things. Those are all things that keep pests away, like pests like ticks, uh, flies sometimes, and then also specifically mosquitoes. If you have any standing bodies of water that you still have or notice around your house, especially after it rains and you're collecting rainwater, I would just make sure you put a net of some time over it because mosquitoes are vigilant. <laughs> as soon as they see some water, they go in and they start reproducing. They're worse than rabbits in that capacity. So I would make sure that you dump out your water if it's you know been sitting for too long literally a day is too long in Pensacola because if you look in you'll see squigglies and that means that it's already chock full of those this tasty little um this tasty little mosquito larvae Additionally, I know this is more of a community spotlight, but we do have a community garden downtown. If that's something that you're interested in starting in other areas of Escambia County in Santa Rosa, Okaloosa, I would definitely look into that and also just look into some things as well. You can do these things in your neighborhoods, um, in your areas, in your in your city, your small city. Technically, Pensacola is one overarching thing, but if you know anything about the city, we have Brent, we have Beulah, we have Inslee, we have... We have Brownsville, we have Ferry Pass, we have Warrington. We have all those different things, cantonments, such and such. But most of the time, if you're doing um, all of those, people just lump those in as Pensacola. So again, just check out your area. I do know that people throughout our area garden and have success. I myself garden with my kids and with my husband, and uh, we love it. It's really awesome. You can set up your own compost bin so that if maybe you did forget to, you know, slice up those cucumbers and eat it guilty, or maybe if you bought bell peppers for the 50 millionth time thinking you were going to make fajitas and you didn't, you can always, um, what I like to do is I like to strip the seeds out of things, especially, you know, fruit, fruit and fruiting vegetables. So bell peppers are a great example. I take the seeds out and I put them on our bird table because we're not really going to eat them and I'm not really going to use all those seeds. So why not let the birds eat them as plenty of good stuff for them and they clear them out at once. 
As far as the actual pepper part of the plant, um, I take those and I put them in our compost bin. Uh, we have it directly feeding into the ground and you know it gets rainwater and everything so worms come up and other things come up other other what are they called other decomposers come and they break the stuff down and it is really really great soil so I would just look at some of those things and look at how you can you know try to reuse recycle and stuff like that it is really good it's really sustainable and it is so cost efficient it helps so that you don't have to go and buy these things from people you don't know if they've used pesticides you don't know what processes they've used um, and if you're not okay with or comfortable with that then you should grow and you should buy locally I do also understand that not everybody has the time for that, so do what you can and also support local efforts. We do have local farmers markets. There's one that's been on Pine Forest um, Mobile Highway my entire life right across from the fairgrounds. So go over there. They accept things like EBT. They also accept things like um, WIC. I used WIC a lot. Um, after I had my first son and I went there all the time to get fresh produce because it's not that far from where I live and I used to go there as a kid whenever we didn't grow stuff on our own because my granny was heavily into growing <laughs> and she had a garden wherever she went um, with that being said you can also you can also use your EBT at places like Home Depot if again you are feeling like you are ready to just fully dive in things like blueberry bushes or trees you might have to check on but I have heard that you can use your EBT card for that because it's technically food you'll be growing it but it is food that you're getting and if that's a thing that you have and you have access to I would utilize it in that way because it's a little bit of a different way than you would think about or that you're used to but it's wholly still a great idea because it benefits you it benefits your kids if you have them and it gives you you know that little bit of like a good feeling like that connection to the past you're getting your hands dirty you're getting in the work in the in the dirt and you're getting connected with the earth that's a great thing that's one of those things that I think we all need because at the end of the day we came from the earth we're going back to the earth and the earth is going to be a part of our lives every single day so that's just my two cents and my input I'm always an advocate for going outside at least a little bit. While I do not necessarily vibe with the sun all the time during summer because um, because I have light skin issues. <laughs> um, I have technically fair skin because I have a ton of freckles and everything like that. But I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't end well. But while I am out there, I do enjoy the time and working up a good sweat is always great, especially because spring is coming. And who doesn't love a really great crispy spring because it mirrors so closely to our falls. This has been Farm, Home, and Garden. If you do have any farming or gardening tips or even things like home organizational tips that you'd like to share for people in the area, maybe things that you feel like people no longer remember or no longer do just because uh, we might have forgotten about it, uh, definitely share it out and I'll try to share it in segments in the future. Always appreciate it. Community spotlights. So here I'll typically try to bring up anything that is spotlighted or highlighted in our community in Pensacola. Today, in the somber shadows cast upon our community, we pause to remember the bright spirit of Kayla Atwood, a cherished member of Pensacola who recently departed this world. In this moment of reflection, we extend our deepest condolences to her loved ones. May her memory be a source of comfort, and may the community join together in embracing the collective loss of someone who seemed truly sweet and was a cherished soul. Fly high, Kayla. 
In a recent development, justice takes a step forward as a second suspect in the tragic murder of Ladarius Clary from 2021 has been found guilty. Ladarius, a Pine Forest High School footballer with a bright future, was the victim of an ill-fated contract killing, leaving a void in our community that left only anger, confusion, and sadness. We hope this conviction provides a measure of solace for Ladarius's family, offering them strength on their path to healing. Our thoughts and wishes for peace remain with them during this extremely difficult time. Fly high, Ladarius. So before I start crying, <laughs> I'm going to have to move on to a different section. Um, but again, this has been Community Spotlights. I know there are also a bunch of teachers and everything that received um, Teacher of the Year. I don't want to necessarily call out their names on here just because I don't want that information to be out like that. But we do have some really great teachers in Escambia County. I know that some people might not necessarily think that our school system is the best, our teachers are the best, but when I was growing up here, I mean, my teachers literally breathed life into me for education, especially English. I love English so much because I had some of the best English, English and language arts teachers, period, <laughs> hands down. So um, I want to say that the work that you all do doesn't go unnoticed. You know, you might not be getting it. You might not feel like you're getting it right now. You might feel like it's a struggle. You might feel like you can't push through. But you being in the position that you're in only helps you make decisions and help you drive changes for the future. That's not only for you, for your coworkers, and for anybody who comes after you. That's also for the children. And at the end of the day, our children are our future. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to prepare ourselves for the future so that you know maybe the future's a little bit better <laughs> it's not the same as the past not necessarily wanting to go back to things that didn't work we want to try to move through them and get to something that does work for all of us and that works better so like i said off my soapbox because i could be here forever and this could just be me ranting about any and everything so i want to i want to say that i do appreciate everyone who is working hard and i appreciate those who maybe aren't working as hard as some people might think they are you know, everything that you do doesn't go unnoticed. Maybe a lot of things do, but if you feel like you're not getting the attention you need to deserve, you can always call out attention to yourself. Just say, hey, I'm doing this. You know, maybe you could join me. There's always a way to call attention to what you're doing because at the end of the day, you might not be doing it for attention. You might be doing it to raise awareness. And that's a different type of attention because you're doing it because you're passionate about something. And hey, passion is never a bad thing. So now I'm going to wrap up with my conclusions. I know that this has been a lot of information and my original goal was to try to keep each one of these episodes to about 25 to 30 minutes. But as I said, I just can't. I'm, I've got only child or I've got first child syndrome, I think. And, uh, you know, we just talk and talk and talk, especially only child syndrome with a bunch of children. So I, I talk and talk and talk and over talk. <laughs> but, um, like I said, I do have an overwhelming passion for Escambia County and Pensacola. I do love this area. You know, when I was younger, I was vehemently against staying. I hated living here because I was like, oh, it's so boring. It's so country. There's nothing to do. But I'll leave you with this final thought that I have. So you can be happy and you could be unhappy no matter where you are. Whether you call your home Pensacola or you call your home Orlando or Miami, maybe you're in California or Texas or New York, maybe you're even in Idaho or Wyoming. It doesn't matter where you are. You can always make the best of what you have around you and you can travel. <laughs> I know a lot of people might not necessarily have a ton of money to travel here and there, but sometimes even going 30 minutes, an hour outside of where you normally are can be 
the break that you need and give you a little bit of a different perspective about where you are and where you want to be. Again, you may not necessarily always think, hey, I want to live here because I just really don't like being here. There's nothing wrong with that. Move out, go places, find things. Traveling is always good because travel is how you find what you want to do, where you want to be, and ultimately it's how you get to know yourself. My name is Tyler L. Davis, and this has been a Pensacola Perspective. I hope everybody has a great week, and I hope everybody stays safe.